Let me pray and then we will begin. As always, dear God, we look to you um, in each thing we do, whether we are opening your word or getting out of bed in the morning, eating lunch, whatever it might be, uh, we do look to you. Forgive us for not uh, being more fully centered on who you are, You're more fully aware of your presence. May we uh, grow again in what it means to fear you and to trust you. Finally, to enjoy you and uh, know your pleasure moment by moment, day by day. We do pray that we would also share your heart and mind, that we would cry with you and strive with you and give ourselves fully to your purposes in this uh, troubled world. We thank you that you are the great God you are on a day of national elections. We are glad to rest in you and leave with you what belongs to you. Um, and to embrace each day as your gift and live with a sense of your providence. We thank you that we can look to you as we open your word right now. We pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and that we would understand what you uh, would teach us. Thank you for these friends who choose to spend this time this way. Bless them, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> so to kind of catch up with where we are, we have been looking primarily at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we've gone from the beginning of their accounts through to this great event of the feeding of the 5,000. If you spend any time in Sunday school or church growing up, the feeding of the 5,000 may be even more familiar to you than Moses in the bulrushes. Um, there are these certain images that kind of uh, get worn out. If you haven't thought about it for a while, the feeding of the 5,000 is really wild. It's interesting to me that it shows up in all four Gospels. That should always catch your attention when something shows up in all four Gospels like that. And it has gotten me thinking about it a little bit. I, I think part of what's striking about it is that it's not just a redemptive or healing miracle, which is what most miracles are. Jesus is functioning as the creator in this one. And I, I take it with complete seriousness. I don't think this is to be reduced to, oh, there was a little boy with lunch and everybody learned to share because he shared. No, I, I think Jesus did exactly what the account says he did. And part of what is absolutely blowing people away and while why John and his gospel will say, and after that one people believed, is that he is really functioning as creator as well as healer in uh, this episode. In any case, we have followed Jesus from the beginning up through that feeding of the 5,000. And Mark, we jumped right in. You get the adult version right through chapter six. In Matthew, you have the opening chapters. And then um, in uh, Luke, the same thing. 
in all three cases, you have Jesus moving to Capernaum, that's sort of an introductory, introductory day of his ministry in Capernaum, and then from there, his travels throughout Galilee, Judea, and areas beyond like Tyre and Sidon or across the Sea of Galilee, um, doing the teaching, the signs and wonders, the miracles that he's doing. He calls disciples, they walk with him, he sends them out, they come back, and it's soon after they come back that we have that feeding of the 5,000. What we have not talked about is John's Gospel, so today what I want to do is move on over into John's Gospel and just look at it some and see how it fits alongside these other accounts that we have. So to start with, let me point out the fact that at the very end of John's Gospel, in chapter 20, verse 31, John gives us a purpose statement, much like Luke does in the opening verses of Luke's Gospel. So in John 20, verse 31, John says that these things have been written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. These things have been written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing in him you may have life. That's helpful to have in mind as you read the whole gospel and to go back then to the very beginning, let's just kind of recall what we've seen so far. For the most part, we've looked at John's gospel with reference to John the baptizer and seen that there is a fair amount about that John the baptizer, John the Baptist. Um, so we've got the prologue, the introductory comments about Jesus, and then you get John the Baptist showing up in verse six and then you work with him, uh, starting particularly from verse 19 of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 1. We saw that John the baptizer has disciples. He introduces them to Jesus. They include Simon Peter and Andrew, and also Philip and Nathaniel. Jesus then has those four follow him um, back into Galilee. Uh, we saw the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and then um, that Jesus moves on down to Capernaum in verse 12 of chapter 2, and then we also looked at John the Baptist's comments about Jesus at the end of chapter 3, about Jesus must increase and I must decrease. The parts that we didn't particularly look at in there uh, include the end of chapter 2 where we find out that Jesus went down to Jerusalem as John tells it and that in the temple he finds these money changers turning his father's house into a house of merchandise as he puts it in verse 16 and he clears things out saying among other things that if anyone destroyed this temple, he would raise it up again in three days. He was speaking of his body and not the actual physical building that he was clearing out at the time. Um, John's Gospel does have a lot of um, elements that are hard to know how to place. Um, 
but I'm inclined to think that John is giving us some events here that are very early in Jesus's adult ministry life. Um, but as we saw before, these first four chapters of John actually come before John the Baptist is imprisoned. And so all of this would be very early in Jesus's ministry or in his adult life. This includes his visit to Jerusalem where he clears the temple and then in chapter 3 meets with Nicodemus. In chapter 3 is where we get that story of Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus secretly and asks him some questions. This is where Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you in verse 3, unless you are born again, which can also be rendered born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is puzzled by this imagery. Truly, Jesus says in verse 5, I say, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Do not marvel, as I say to you, verse 7, you must be born again. He talks about the mysterious work of the Spirit and then goes on to talk about to call Nicodemus to uh, faith in him. Um, then you see in the end of chapter 3, Jesus gets out of John's way. He goes back through Samaria in chapter 4. And so it's not until chapter 5 that you get to Jesus' sort of general ministry. It is interesting then in John's Gospel, the first four chapters all take place before Jesus sort of formally steps out and publicly begins his ministry. By the time you get to chapter 11, and probably even John 9 and 10, you're already getting very close to the final week of, of Jesus' life. By the time you get to John 11, you clearly are in that final week. And then that takes you all the way uh, to the end of John chapter 21. So John's Gospel is set up in a way that the first four chapters are very early in the story of Jesus' ministry. And by the time you get to chapter 11, you're at the very end of Jesus' ministry. And so John only has chapters 5 to 8 or 9, where, where he's covering what we have in 16 and more chapters in Matthew. Um, and, and so you really have that kind of uh, division in John. And the other thing that you have in John, along with that sort of structure, is that he brings us, uh, he gives us a lot of Jerusalem-oriented um, narrative. Uh, so you can sort of be watching for that, where you'll see Jesus in Jerusalem as you do, for instance, in chapters two and three, and then you'll find him back in Jerusalem in chapter five. Um, in, uh, in chapter 5, you have the uh, story of uh, him going into Jerusalem on the, on the um, uh, feast of the Jews, probably a Passover, um, and the healing of this man by the pool at Bethesda where the waters are stirred. It turns out to be on a Sabbath day, and so you have the Sabbath controversies there with that episode as you do in the other Gospels. And then... Um, you have Jesus uh, talking about himself and his relationship with the Father. We'll come back to that in just a minute. By the time you're in chapter 6, then, you are into the feeding of the 5,000. 
Um, so you can see you've got basically one chapter in John to match up with 14 chapters in Matthew and six chapters in Mark. Um, what I want to do then is just reflect a little bit on John's uh, purpose as he stated it. This is so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you would have uh, life. John's Gospel um, does present Jesus then as the Christ, but it's a wonderfully rich presentation in which it is clear that Jesus is the Christ, but John is also just layering all of these images one on top of another for how to see Jesus and how to understand Jesus. Some of it is Jesus' own words to describe himself, and then it's also the words of other people who recognize Jesus for who he is. When you go right back to the beginning, in John 1, he is introduced, as you recall, as what? The Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so Jesus is initially introduced as the Word. And you might want to jot these things down and go back to them and, and sort of reflect on these images and then sort of keep going because we've only begun when we get to chapter 6. They just keep coming. And this is part of what's wonderful and rich about John's Gospel is this kind of layering of images. But right there in the first few verses, what have we got? Jesus is the Word of God. As word, he is the creator of all things. He is the source of life. And as the source of life, he is the light of all men. Right off the bat, we've got all of those images and ways of describing Jesus. In verse 14, then we find him taking on flesh, becoming incarnate, and living among us for a while. As we move then down through John the Baptist's comments about Jesus, how does John introduce him? Verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And part of what you end up here with is, um, is well, the term Messiah is not always present in these images. What is present are the meanings of, of what it is to be Messiah. And so he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In verse 36, John reiterates this, Behold the Lamb of God. Later in that same chapter, uh, he is identified in verse 41, uh, where Andrew is the one saying to Simon, Behold, we have found him. We have found the Messiah, which when translated means Christ. And then in verse 45, Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. In verse 49, then, we get yet another image for him. As Nathanael responds to meeting Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. That Son of God theme we'll come back to in a minute because it is repeated so frequently. But here, just in a few verses again, as these disciples meet him, John the Gospel writer gives us all of these ways of talking about Jesus as the Lamb of God, the one about whom Moses and the law and the prophets write, the King of Israel. 
You go on over into chapter 3, <coughs> and where Jesus is talking about himself to Nicodemus, in verse 13 and following, he identifies himself as the Son of Man, which is a very heavily weighted way of identifying the Messiah that looks back to the book of Daniel. Um, and so Jesus says about himself, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man, um, is a reference to himself. And then he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Um, from there, Jesus goes on to talk with the Samaritan woman, and in that exchange, he identifies himself as the source of living water. John, the Gospel writer, later will identify Jesus simply as the living water that bubbles up within. But here in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says to the woman, everyone who drinks of this water from this well will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. The water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. She says, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty and won't have to keep coming out to this well to drink. Oh. To hear these things for the first time, whoever drinks of the water I shall give will never thirst. The water that I will give to you will become in you a well of water springing up to eternal life. Isn't that a great way for Jesus to present himself to this woman? present himself to you or me what would it mean for us to allow Jesus to be that that's the issue isn't it he is that so the question is what would it mean for us to allow that to be the case a well of living water springing up to eternal life it continues in chapter 4, the imagery of Messiah and Christ does come out. And it's interesting that as Jesus presents himself, he presents himself in these images like living water. Um, it is the other people who go ahead and recognize, yeah, this guy is the Christ, the Messiah. Nathaniel, Philip, Andrew, Peter did that sort of thing in John 1. Here in chapter 4, it is the woman uh, who identifies him this way. In chapter 4, verse 25, the woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And then Jesus confirmed, I who speak to you am he. Um, and then the, those who come out and meet him identify him in verse 42 at the end of that verse. Uh, we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. Finally, in chapter 5, as Jesus is talking about himself at the end of chapter 5 and verse 46. Um, if you believed Moses, Jesus says, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. That harkens back to the idea of what Nathaniel had said. 
This is the one about whom Moses and the prophets wrote. And in chapter 6, verse 14, when therefore the people saw the sign, the, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, they said, this is of a truth, the prophet who was to come into the world. Um, there is just this wonderfully rich layering of images in John's gospel. As I say, they don't stop there. We'll go into chapter six next week and talk about Jesus presenting himself as the bread of life. Um, and I encourage you, read on through John because we're only gonna get through chapter six here this semester, but if you want some great reading, um, you read on through the Gospel of John uh, as we finish out this semester. Um, John said he wants, to, uh, he wants you in this book to recognize then that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the other, another theme then that we have throughout John's Gospel. We have it right from the beginning in chapter 1, verses 14 and 18, where Jesus becoming flesh is identified, um, where, where the Son of God is, is becoming flesh is identified as the only begotten of the Father in verse 14, and then again in verse 18, the only begotten of God. John's witness in verse 34 of chapter 1 also identifies him as the Son of God. I have seen and bear witness that this is the Son of God, he says. In verse 49, <coughs> Nathanael, identifying him as the King of Israel, identifies him as well as the Son of God. Then in chapter 3, Jesus' own words are that he is both Son of Man and Son of God. He identifies himself, as we saw in verse 13, following as Son of Man, and then in verse 16, he says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent, did, not son, did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In chapter five, one more time, Jesus identifies himself um, very much, very clearly as the Son of God. Chapter five, verses 17 and 18, he answers, my father is working until now and I myself am working. And these who were listening knew exactly what he was saying. And so they were all the more upset with him and ready to kill him for this blasphemy because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So John, presenting Jesus as the Christ, presenting Jesus as the Son of God, and doing that in order that we might believe in him. Again, just reiterating perhaps and looking at some obvious passages, but that idea of calling us to believe and giving us reasons to believe fills John's gospel. In talking with Jesus, as we just saw, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that the way of life is to believe in Jesus, that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up in the same way that Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so that whoever looks to him 
whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then the verses we just read, that God loved the world and gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In chapter 3, verse 36, now John the Baptist, I believe, is still speaking here. It may be John the Gospel writer, but I think it's John the Baptist saying in his final comment here that he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him, that we are under judgment, and that the deliverance from judgment into life is through faith in the Son of God. In chapter 4 then, when he interacts with the woman, in verse 14, he calls her to believe. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. The water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And then at the end of that narrative, both she and her friends from the town believe in him as the Messiah and Savior of the world. Chapter 5, then, is, is still sort of the additional material that John gives us that runs parallel to everything we've seen in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we've talked about it a little bit, but, but let me just linger over some of this. And, and here, Jesus, identifying himself with the Father as his Father, Jesus as the Son of God, and as his opponents recognize in verse 18, making himself equal with God. And then just listen to what Jesus says here in these verses, starting um, with, with verse 19. Jesus says, <coughs> Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. Greater works than these will he show him, that you may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did good to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, 
and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. But the witness which I receive is not from man, but I say these things, that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. And then that last verse, verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Um, Jesus, it's good just to hear a few words like this of the text and not just me and, and hear the kinds of things that Jesus is arguing about himself, the union of him with the Father, that he is the Father's Son, that what he does is the work of the Father in him. Um, and then the argument first that John bore witness of Jesus, and there were good reasons to accept John's witness, as many people did. And then the works bear witness of Jesus, and this is right, this is in keeping with what Moses had predicted, that the prophet should be judged by the prophet's works. It was right that that judgment be made, and Jesus gave people every reason to see him as that prophet. And finally, the scriptures themselves bear witness to him because Moses wrote of him. That's the one chapter that John gives us uh, to take us all the way from the beginning of Jesus' ministry all the way to the feeding of the 5,000, which is what we get as we begin in the chapter 6. Let me, let me just pause there um, and, and say, are there any parts of John's gospel that you want to, John's picture of Jesus that you want to linger over or talk about or raise questions about? <coughs> Specifically, what are you looking at? Verse 21? Um, 25, when he says, An hour is coming, and I was here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Uh, and then, even in 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs. Because the, the first one is saying, I kind of get like more of a metaphorical, like the dead, um, and they'll hear. But then when he says, All who are in the tombs, I'm like, They seem pretty dead, dead. Right. And, and I think you just answered your own question really okay, well. But, and go back to 21, and, and you, you have a, an additional part of that, um, where I think you're right to say there is a, an imagery of spiritual deadness and being raised to life in the spirit, but then it morphs over into an actual resurrection 
that I think you're right to see in verse uh, 28 where the tombs are specifically referenced and, and the day of judgment in verse 29. And so I think there's meant to be some ambiguity in it. But as is typical of John and of Jesus in John, that ambiguity is almost always pointing toward a deeper meaning of a spiritual reality. Um, as we'll see as he goes into chapter 6, and you have him talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Um, that, that we're pointing beyond the physical um, to deeper meanings. And I think you have a similar thing here. It's very different, isn't it, from the other three Gospels? Very different. And, and so many words of Jesus in John. If you have the red letter editions, you know, it's easy to see. You open up John's Gospel and you've got all kinds of red ink. Um, and you open up Mark and you have very little. Uh, so it's nice, to, again, to have the four and to get as much as we get out of John. Very little of John's Gospel is in the other three until you get to the, to the death and, and resurrection itself. But even there, um, very much fuller telling um, with lots of detail and things going on that the other Gospels don't, don't include. Um, read John 6 for next week. I, I sort of have just stopped there. Um, it, it takes you up through, uh, as I say, the feeding of the 5,000, and that happens in the first uh, 14 verses, I think it is, um, uh, of, of the feeding of the 5,000, and then of them uh, going away in the boat. Uh, and then we'll deal with the rest of John 6 next week, uh, along with... Um, the other passages that are listed. The syllabus is actually accurate, much to my amazement, for next week's class. Read Matthew 16, Mark 8, Luke 9, and John 6 um, for the, uh, this moment of Peter's profession of faith and the four accounts of that that we have in the four Gospels. But to finish out today, then, I do want to go back to um, Matthew, and particularly to Mark, we have this interesting little sort of addition in Matthew and Mark. Yeah. I just have one more on John. Mm-hmm. <coughs> what was the verse? You said that there was like another verse about like bubbling over. Yeah. I, I'd have to look. Is it in John or is it in the Old Testament? No, it's John. I think I'm, I'm quite sure I'm thinking of a different passage. Let me try to make a note. to look at that. Um, in, in Matthew 14 to 16 and in Mark 7 and 8, we have um, the additional material, and to reflect back to this uh, handout that we'd used a couple of weeks ago, when you get down to the bottom of the handout, remember Luke drops out, and Matthew and Mark then track together, and what they give us is... Um, some episodes between the feeding of the 5,000 and Peter's profession of faith. Both Luke and John go directly from the feeding of the 5,000 to what in effect becomes Peter's profession of faith. Um, Matthew and Mark give us this additional material. Um, And so let's look at Mark, and we'll just finish out with a few minutes 
of looking at this. You begin at the end of Mark 6, where after the feeding of the 5,000, they get in the boat, he comes walking to them. Um, and then uh, you go into chapter 7 and 8. And because we are limited on time, I'll just go ahead and say, it's these chapters that particularly moved me to see this gospel of Mark as an account of the disciples walking with Christ, and particularly then of their growing in understanding of who he is, and at the same time, sort of struggling to get there. In Mark chapter 6, verse 52, um, we, we've just had him get into the boat, um, having come to them across the waves. He gets into the boat in verse 51, the wind stopped there, greatly astonished, and Mark includes this line, which is not in the other Gospels. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. Mark includes that kind of a thing here. That the disciples are, they're sort of learning, and they are gaining some understanding, but they're also kind of slow. When Jesus gives them the parables, they have to have him explain it to him. Uh, explain them to to them and he says to them then don't you understand these things if you understand this how are you going to understand other things and that kind of picture of the disciples seems to continue as you go into chapter 7 and 8 <coughs> um, you have some more episodes and then you have the additional feeding of the 4,000 and it's after that feeding of the 4,000 that you that you then have these um, uh, these times where Jesus does a miracle, and I think the miracles are meant to show the disciples' progress and lack of progress as they're coming along, and yet finally Jesus' work in them. So there's very little in Mark that is unique to Mark. Probably the main two things are in chapter 7 and 8. In chapter 7, verse 31, you have the miracle that he comes back to the Sea of Galilee, and they bring to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. They entreated him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside from the multitude by himself, put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And the man's ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began to speak plainly. So there is, a, there is a miracle in which what's being pictured is ears are being opened and the tongue is being released to speak plainly. People, as usual, are amazed to see the deaf hear and the dumb speak. Um, and he does tell this guy not to be talking about it. But the more widely, the, the, the more he tells people not to, the more they keep, keep talking. But the image, the image of the miracle is ears are open, tongue is enabled to speak. Then um, you have in chapter 8 the feeding of the 4,000, very similar to the feeding of the 5. They then leave and uh, go get again get in the boat. In um, chapter 8, verse 14, Mark includes specifically the detail that they had forgotten to take bread, 
and didn't have more than one loaf in the boat with them. In chapter 8, verse 17, um, Jesus says, why are you talking about the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? And he records, re repeats to them um, what he had done with the, with the bread. In verse 21, then he is saying again, do you not yet understand? So they are not seeing yet what he wants them to understand from the miracles that he's doing. It's not just about multiplying bread. And so now in verse 22, they come to Bethsaida, another name for Capernaum, and they bring to him a blind man and treat him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brings him out of the village, spits on his eyes, lays his hands on him and asks him, do you see anything? The man looks and says, I see men, but I see them like trees walking around. Then Jesus again lays his hands upon his eyes, looks intently, and the man looks intently and was restored and begins to see everything clearly. Um, this, is a, this is, of course, one of the most curious miracles that it takes two attempts, as it were. Jesus heals the man, but he's not seeing accurately yet. And then Jesus touches him again, and he sees. Um, I think that what we've got in both of these miracles is Jesus giving the disciples a picture of themselves. That there is work still to be done. They do not see and understand everything clearly yet. But they are they're in process, and Jesus is not done with them yet. And so these are miracles that reflect back to Isaiah's prophecies about the sort of thing the Messiah will do, but they are also illustrations to the disciples themselves and illustrations to us who read the narrative. And so you have a picture of Jesus giving hearing to the disciples and the ability to speak plainly, but still they're not seeing fully. They are hardened in their hearts. They don't understand the deeper truths that he's wanting to communicate to them. And so he does this healing of the blind man and he touches him. And it is always interesting that these miracles are done in this gross manner of Jesus spitting and using his saliva as healing. That's always a very humbling, troubling way to get healed, in case it's never struck you. The grace of God is often uncomfortable. Um, and, and so he heals this man, but the man doesn't see yet, does he? But he does, sort of. And then Jesus does the second work, and then they see. And what follows immediately in Mark's narrative? Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? They give him some answers, and then he says, and who do you say I am? It's interesting that this miracle leads right into that exchange, where with clarity then, Jesus is identified as the Christ by Peter. But, but I love this picture, and it's sort of in keeping with what we saw early on, that becoming a disciple of Jesus is a process. John's Gospel, Matthew, Mark's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, is a process of becoming a disciple. And then Mark gives us an account in which being a disciple turns out to be a process too. 
And I think in, in Mark's case then, these two miracles are particularly included because they illustrate that process of the disciples being given ears to hear, a mouth to speak, and eyes that see, but don't quite see, and then see more fully. And it doesn't just stop there, does it? There's still more work to be done, but I love the picture that it gives. And I love the fact that at the heart of it is that Jesus is the one doing the work. Jesus is the one bringing about the change in his, in his followers' lives, and that the fruit really does come. And that that goes hand in glove with them stumbling, with them believing, with them making choices, and with us doing the same. Um, we'll stop there, and then next week we will get into this decisive point then in all four Gospels of Peter's profession of faith, and we'll reflect over that together some, and then we'll have one more week uh, that I think is, is equally significant in terms of a turning point uh, in the Gospel narratives. Thank you for your patience and kindness and all of that. Um, as always, I, I do hope you're getting a chance to do some reading. And if you didn't read beforehand, I'd, I'd encourage you to do the reading um, of the passages we talked about today. There's nothing to take the place of actually just reading the text. So be sure to do that as well.